0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Can you hear me at the back? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so in the interests of full disclosure, and to avoid any written complaints after the lecture, the lobster never gets to Ganymede. Okay. So, um, but there's a reason for it. So this talk is really partly about... Uh, a new mission to Jupiter. Uh, but it's also a little bit about the, the, sort of the, the, the series of circumstances and activities which led me to be involved in, in the mission. So <clears throat> the sun is the powerhouse that holds the solar system in shape, that holds the planets in their orbit, and that provides us with energy that we require in order to survive. But it's a very violent place. As you can see here, this is um, uh, an animation which shows the sun in one very narrow band of wavelengths, in in the hydrogen alpha band, and it's a seething um, maelstrom of magnetic fields, of plasma, uh, of nuclear fusion processes, and It's generating the light and the heat which we require to survive by turning approximately 4 million tons of hydrogen into helium every second. And as well as that, it's throwing out into space about a million tons of material that provides the flow of protons and other particles which we know as the solar wind you can see that the sun has strong magnetic fields because you can actually see the shape of the magnetic fields in the form of the prominences and the flares which are particularly visible around the rim of the sun. And the reason for that is that these protons and other charged particles are trapped on the magnetic field lines and reveal the magnetic fields to us. And that will be significant later on. Uh, This is... Uh, another animation showing a particularly energetic outburst from the Sun, and one of the things that you notice is that as the explosion of of plasma erupts from the surface of the star we see this snowy effect, a little bit like taking an old-fashioned cathode ray tube. I feel quite old when I say that because only until about two years ago I had a cathode ray tube. An old-fashioned cathode ray tube TV and detuning it and you get that snowy effect. This snowy effect is less benign. This is the effect of charged particle radiation slamming into the spacecraft and creating, uh, liberating energy in the detectors and the electronics of that spacecraft. That can be a real problem, uh, not only for the operators of spacecraft, but for people using infrastructure on the ground. But it does have a a very beautiful um, uh, consequence, and as you can see here, A consequence is the generation of the aurora. So this is the aurora in the northern hemisphere, the aurora borealis, different colors. This isn't CGI by the way, this is real footage. Different colors are generated by different gases in the atmosphere being excited by these charged particles as they uh, collide with the atoms at very high altitudes. And so you can see these beautiful purple and blue and and, uh, orange and green displays is even better from space. So here are some high definition uh, videos taken from the International Space Station showing the amazing aurora and uh, a fair number of thunderstorms as well. Um, And you can see in this sequence from a spacecraft called Image that the aurora are concentrated into an oval-shaped zone around the northern pole and uh, a similar zone around the southern uh uh, pole which you can't see on this image on this video Uh, but you can see that it's a very dynamic system lots and lots of uh, variability which is created by the varying flow of particles coming from the sun and their interaction with the earth's magnetic field one of the reasons that we try to observe the aurora from space is that we like to look at the aurora, not just in the visible range of wavelengths, but also at uh, shorter wavelengths, higher energies in the ultraviolet and the X-ray. Because those wavelengths can tell us about uh, 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 processes going on within the auroral um, uh, systems that can't be revealed with visible wavelengths. And so this leads to some challenges when it comes to actually developing hardware to make those observations. Um, So if we think about uh, observations at X-rays, here is William Runchen, the discoverer of X-rays. A strange um, piece of happenstance, he developed an unexposed piece of film that he had in his laboratory and found that it was fogged and realized that or made the connection between that fogging and some of the cathode ray apparatus that he was working on in his laboratory and inferred that he'd found some new invisible, hitherto undiscovered form of ray. And so he did whatever a whatever self-respecting scientist would do. He called to his wife and he said, I found this unknown source of radiation. If you'd just like to put your hand in there, um, Uh, I'll take a photograph, and that's what he did. And this is Mrs. Rontgen's hand. This is the wedding ring. It remained on after he'd irradiated her. Um, And it it embodies one of the properties of X-rays that makes them so useful to us on the Earth, which is that X-rays have a propensity to either pass through a medium or to be absorbed in the medium. They're not really known for their reflectivity. And those of you who are familiar with um, observational astronomy, Uh, and the operation of telescopes will know that to focus images, we need to generally reflect photons or refract photons. X-rays don't really want to do either of those things. So if we took a classical Newtonian telescope and we imagined X-rays entering the telescope tube, rather than being reflected from this mirror, they would simply be absorbed. Not a lot of use. So how do we do it? Well, we, we focus x-rays in the same way that we can throw stones at water and have the stone bounce off the surface. We just skim the stone at very shallow angles of incidence. This is exactly how x-ray mirrors work. So this is an x-ray mirror, one mirror which was produced for a mission called XMM-Newton. And you can see that this mirror is rather unlike your classic bathroom mirror. It's a cylinder. Or in fact, it's not a perfect cylinder. It's Uh, It has a a cross-section, which is a parabola followed by a a hyperbolic cross-section. But what happens with this mirror is that it presents a grazing incidence surface. So X-ray photons coming in from distant astronomical objects undergo a very shallow glancing incidence on the surface, and that reflects the light. You can see that it's a rather inefficient way of using a mirror. If you had this kind of set up in your bathroom you would need an enormous mirror to be able to you know, shave, put on makeup, whatever, because it's, the thing is tilted edgeways on. And so to get efficient or to get sufficient throughput from instruments that use these grazing incidence mirrors, we have to use a lot of them. So there are 58 of these mirror shells in one mirror assembly on board XMM Newton. And there are three of those mirror assemblies So this is a very expensive, very delicate, very heavy, very large system. And heavy and large are words that we try to avoid when we're developing instrumentation for space, because getting stuff into space is expensive. Launching mass out of the potential well, uh, the gravitational potential well of the Earth, takes a huge amount of energy. Um, My old... uh, uh, now departed um, astronomy professor George Fraser used to have an analogy and he said that if low Earth orbit were filled with gold bars and the price of gold on the Earth remained unchanged because of that infinite stock of gold, it still wouldn't be worth you going up to fetch it back because it costs so much to get up there in the first place. And so cue the lobster. So, Our eyes are typical of all mammalian eyes, and they are um, systems that work on optical principles that we're all familiar with. So the human eye is a a refracting um, instrument. It's remarkably good, given that it's made of water. You try and make a camera lens out of water in the lab and see how well you do. Um, This guy here is called Big D. He is a lobster. And his eyes are rather different. If we look at the lobster's eyes under the microscope, we see a spherical surface. So, somewhat reminiscent of our own eyes, but we don't see an iris and a pupil. We see a very large number of these square cross-section holes. And if we look at those holes in greater detail, so these are electron microscope images of lobster's eyes, um, you can see that they are square channels. And the way that the lobster eye works is through grazing incidence. So light enters the lobster's eye, so it has this spherically curved surface, you can see the holes here, and the light reflects off the walls of those square cross-section holes. And therefore, these things operate just like the XMM-Newton mirror that you saw in the previous slide. So it turns out that lobster's eyes are actually very good X-ray telescopes. There is no evidence that lobsters have ever taken the slightest bit of interest in seeing the universe in X-rays. But if they wanted to, that's the structure you would use. And it's a structure that's been around for quite some time in an artificial form. Because in... The middle of, or the active element in most night vision goggles is a glass plate that looks like this. This is called a microchannel plate. It was originally developed for military applications. It was then adopted by the astronomical community who realized that these things would make very good X-ray detectors. So here is a, a, a little demonstration of, the, of, the, of a model of a lobster eye. So these are two angle poise lamps. Uh, and a series of glass slides, they're actually microscope slides, set up uh, in just the geometry that we see in the lobster design. we can see that those two lights are focused on a focal surface, which represents the retina of the, of the lobster. So what? Well, these things can be made to be very small. So this is a glass tile, which is 40 by 40 millimeters on a side. It weighs about 1.7 grams but it focuses X-rays, and it produces a field of view of about 22 and a half degrees. So we can use this kind of device to create a new generation of X-ray instruments that's much lighter and much more compact than the mirrors that you saw on XMM-Newton. They have different performance characteristics. They're not a replacement for those mirrors, but for certain applications, particularly planetary observations, they're extremely uh, useful. And this is a, an image of the flight unit of an instrument called MIX, and this was uh, uh, built at the University of Leicester, at least this part was. Uh, and this is an instrument, it's an imaging x-ray spectrometer, which is now installed on a spacecraft called Bepi-Colombo, And Colombo is uh, the European Space Agency's Mercury mission, which is due to be launched sometime around 2017. And this instrument, which is only about that size from front to back, and you can lift it very easily by hand, will be doing um, comprehensive elemental mapping of the planetary surface using X-rays to reveal the characteristic chemical fingerprints of the elements on the surface of Mercury. So these things work, and they're very useful because they reduce the amount of mass and the volume that we we need in order to place observational instruments like that around distant planets. So I started by talking about the Aurora, and it's the Aurora that really got me involved in, in the mission which we'll be looking at shortly. So the auroras are not unique to the Earth. Here is a Hubble Space Telescope image of Jupiter, and we can see that there are auroral zones on Jupiter, just as we have on Earth, except these are much, much larger. On Saturn, these are remarkable images, um, which were Hubble Space Telescope images also, showing auroral emissions at Jupiter, at, at Saturn. Um, this emission display took place while Cassini was in orbit around Jupiter, so we have amazing data that show um, how the aurora are correlated with the particles that are um, in the vicinity of Saturn's atmosphere. And of course, I can't be at an event hosted by the, the Herschel Society without mentioning Uranus. Uranus also has aurora. It's much further away. Um, The conditions are very different, and they're very challenging to observe, but they are there. And these little yellow spots represent the aurora at at Uranus. So while I was working on instrumentation for observation of the aurora at Earth, a colleague of mine, Emma Bunn, said, well, what if you could take your instrument and place it on a spacecraft that's going to go a little bit further away? What if you could send it to Jupiter, Uh, which may be sit-up, somewhat, uh, and started the, um, the journey which, uh, which I'm talking about today. So let's think a little bit about Jupiter. Now, I, I produced this slide um, for the benefit of people who maybe aren't familiar with, with the giant planet, and I'm aware that many of the people in this room probably know more about Jupiter than I do. So um, I apologize if this sounds condescending, but it's useful to work through some numbers. Um, Large numbers like this are a little bit difficult to visualize, so we tend to think about them in terms that are relative to another object, and the classic object to use is the Earth. So Jupiter's radius is about 70,000 kilometers. uh, In fact, it's 72,000 kilometers uh, equatorially. That's about 10 times the Earth's radius. Um, The mass is this, but it's much easier if you just say 318 Earths. Uh, It's five times further away from the sun than the earth is, but uh, but despite the size, its density is very low. It's about a quarter of the density of the earth, and that tells us that most of what we're looking at here is gas. Day length is 10 hours. It takes about 12 years to go around the sun, and there are at least 67 moons, um, of which four are particularly famous, and they're famous because of this gentleman, Galileo, who didn't invent the telescope, he stole it, but nevertheless uh, he put it to very good use. And one of the first objects that he turned his acquired telescope towards was Jupiter. And in this notebook we see the beginnings of the turmoil that was to create enormous amounts of trouble for him uh, throughout the rest of his life because what Galileo showed when he observed Jupiter and recorded it in his notebook, was that there are sources, there are locations in the solar system that act as centers of motion other than the Earth. And this was a real challenge. This was a challenge for people who thought that the Earth was the creation of God and occupied a supreme place in the universe. Everything revolved around the Earth. And by showing that that wasn't the case, Galileo transformed the way that people thought about the place of the Earth in the universe. So those four spots, those four star-like points that he observed in his telescope, we now know as the Galilean satellites. Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. When we think of moons, we may think of objects that are fairly minor players in the solar system, fairly small objects, but these are not. So here is a comparison in uh, terms of other targets within the solar system. So Ganymede is the largest moon in the solar system. It's larger than Mercury, so it's larger than, the, than a planet. Um, Callisto is only just behind Mercury, uh, Io and Europa a little smaller. But these are worlds in their own right, not just small points of light orbiting a planet. So we come to an interesting little diagram and a slight jump in this talk. This diagram illustrates a concept which is known as the the concept of the Goldilocks zone and it's relevant when we try to establish, when we try to guess um, what the likelihood is of there being life elsewhere in the universe, or at least environments conducive to life elsewhere in the universe. And the reason it's called the Goldilocks Zone is very straightforward. If we pick a particular star, so we've got a range of stars here from small, cool objects to large, very hot objects, there is a distance from any particular star within which water can remain as a liquid. A little bit closer than than that distance and it's too hot and the water is lost as a a gas from the surface. A little bit further away and it's too cold and the water becomes ice. Uh, Ice rather different to the kind of ice that you're used to pulling out of your freezer to put in your drink. Ice at, at temperatures that, that, you know, hundred degrees or so below zero uh, has a very different consistency. So too far away, even though you may have water ice, it's not conducive to the formation of life. So this is the habitable zone and it defines the range of distances and therefore the volume of space in which a planet may have liquid water. At least, that's how it was originally conceived. People missed something when they put together that diagram. Um, The thing they missed was tides. So, on the Earth, we are familiar with the tides. So, the tides are uh, produced by the gravitational interaction of the Earth and the Sun, uh, sorry, of of the Moon and the Sun, with the Earth and the bodies of water that cover the Earth. And so as the moon orbits the the Earth, let's try and get that to go again. As the moon orbits the Earth, it pulls up these bodies of water. uh, And so twice a day, we have uh, high tide. Um, The place with the highest tides in the world is... This location here, this is the Bay of Fundy, and that's where that lobster came from. The lady holding the lobster was actually a curator at the the aquarium in the Bay of Fundy. Um, So the tidal displacement here is about 17 meters. And that's why most of this region is powered by hydroelectricity. There are about 114 billion tons of water entering and leaving that bay every day. There's a huge amount of energy contained in that water, in the movement of that water in and out. So tides liberate energy. And tides occur at places other than the Earth. Tides occur wherever you have strong gravitational uh, interactions, and they relate to the differential of those interactions. And one place where we know that there are very strong tides uh, is Io. So this is the innermost of the Galilean moons of Jupiter and it's a hellish, very turbulent, uh, very fiery world. It's covered with sulfur deposits and it's the first place beyond the Earth where active volcanoes were detected. And this is an image taken by the Voyager spacecraft during the flyby. So the tidal interaction between Io and Jupiter squeezes and stretches that satellite and generates heat which drives that volcanism. So what people have missed with this diagram is the fact that it is possible to have habitable zones further out than this very narrow range of space which was called the Goldilocks zone because if you have planets with significant quantities of of water ice, then the tidal interaction between the planet and for example uh, uh, the, uh, the moon and a giant planet such as Jupiter can turn that ice into water. And it opens the possibility for there to be habitable liquid water zones protected by crusts of ice Elsewhere in the solar system and this becomes an absolutely enormous habitable zone Even though those conditions may seem to us to be quite formidable very little sunlight extremely cold um, We know from experience elsewhere that this is not necessarily a bar to life surviving so this is uh, a deep ocean thermal vent there's no sunlight here. The light that you see is produced by the submersible, which is imaging that um, outflow. But you can see that this is a, an area of warmth, so uh, volcanic activity, uh, geothermal activity. Beneath the surface of the, of the, uh, the ocean, beneath the ocean floor, is, is heating the water. And these are little oases of life. They're teeming with life, with, with crabs, with fish, uh, with microbes, no sunlight. This is a bacteria called uh, radiodurans and that bacteria is capable of withstanding and surviving very strong uh, radiation environments. Radiation environments that are a thousand times more intense than the dose that would be lethal to a human being. This is *Luna Surveyor and in the background you can see Um, the Apollo 12 uh, lunar module and one of the objectives of Apollo 12 was to demonstrate precision landing and the way that they demonstrated precision landing was to land next to a a robotic lunar lander which had been sent to the moon about two years previously and as you can see they managed to do it. So they walked from the lunar lander to, to the surveyor and when they got there they removed a camera and they took the camera back home. And when the camera was analyzed in the laboratory, they found bacteria on the lens. Where that bacteria came from is still not entirely clear. But one very uh, favored explanation is that it was contamination of the lens during the period when it was constructed in the laboratory on the Earth before it got to the moon. If that's the case, then those bacteria survived on the surface of the moon in vacuum with a strong thermal uh, variations and a radiation environment for two years. So these habitable zones being extended has an effect on the Drake equation. So the Drake equation is the series of educated guesses uh, that leads us to a number for the the uh, value for the number of civilizations which may exist in the universe. And when I say educated guesses, I do mean educated guesses. But this uh, number here, NE, is affected by that Goldilocks zone extension. It's the, the average number of planets that may develop an ecosystem. In other words, the average number of planets which present an environment that could be conducive to life. Not necessarily on which life has begun, but which could be conducive to life. And if you have a large zone of space where liquid water can exist in a body, then NE goes up. So Jupiter has a direct link to the exploration and the further understanding of extrasolar planets because the Jupiter system embodies three of the five general classes of extrasolar planet which are known to exist. So as well as gas giants, we have Earth-like objects and these water worlds, worlds where there may well be liquid water beneath an icy surface. So Jupiter, in this respect, provides us with Uh, a very convenient laboratory, relatively close by, that allows us to understand this range of extrasolar planet families. So, this was the motivation for uh, proposing a mission called Laplace, EJSM Laplace, to ESA's call for the first of the large observatory, or L-class missions. So there was a a series of proposals which were submitted in 2008. uh, And uh, Laplace was in competition with an X-ray observatory called Athena and a gravitational wave observatory called LISA. So it was a competitive process uh, which involved a number of reviews, a number of panel uh, interviews and and a public presentation in Paris. And in May 2012, the selection was made and EJSM Laplace was selected to take that first L class mission ticket. So, what does EJSM Laplace look like? Well first of all um, the name has changed. So the name is now Juice. We're not altogether happy with that name, uh, but the name stays. Um, This is a view of or a CAD view of the spacecraft as it's currently designed uh, and I'm going to describe the mission in the next uh, 20 minutes but there's some interesting little summary data on this slide so the mission has a cruise phase which lasts seven and a half years so it leaves the earth It takes seven and a half years to get to Jupiter. It spends three and a half years at Jupiter, so it will have about six billion kilometers traveled by the time it it finishes its mission. It's going to carry 10 scientific instruments. Uh, I'm part of a team developing one of those instruments. And it will return about two terabits of scientific data by the end of the mission. It's solar powered, and because of the fact that we have the inconvenience of the inverse square law. And because Jupiter is five times further away from the Sun than is the Earth, the amount of energy available in the form of solar energy at the distance of Jupiter is rather small. It's about 50 watts per square meter versus about 1,360 watts per square meter at the Earth. And this means that we need large solar arrays. About 97 square meters of solar arrays to power the spacecraft. But even though those arrays are very large, the amount of electrical power which is available is very small. So anybody who has a, a yard light, a, little, a halogen light to illuminate the back garden, um, you're probably burning about 500 watts when you switch that light on. That's more than this thing has to do its full, whoops, uh, to carry out its full mission. So, one of the things that we can learn from spacecraft designers is how to be very economical with power. Um, <clears throat> so, oh dear me. Oh dear. A step back. Okay. So, in terms of size, this thing is about The the body of the spacecraft is about the size of a a transit van. Um, The mass at launch is around about 5 tonnes. But that's the wet mass. So about 2.8 tonnes of that mass is fuel. And it's fuel that will be used to uh, conduct manoeuvres during the cruise to Jupiter and, and once the system is in orbit around Jupiter. So, on the next slide, uh, which is courtesy of Airbus, who are the industrial contractor that will be building the the spacecraft structure, um, we've got uh, an exercise in how to build a planetary probe in three minutes. So this is the central cylinder, which is a a composite material, and against the side of that, there are these cavities. Now, these are vaults. And in those vaults are placed heat pipes to cool the systems. Uh, There's a fuel tank and a propulsion system, and then a series of pressurant tanks which drive the fuel into the combustion chamber. A few structural panels. Some of these are removed before flight. They're to secure the system while it's being built. So this is a laser altimeter system, some thrusters to help point the, the spacecraft. This is the electrical harness. Harnesses are the wiring systems of the spacecraft. They're works of art. They retain their shape when they're not attached to the spacecraft. There's a real skill in in building and, and installing these electrical systems. This is a boom. It's a long pole which is used to separate magnetically sensitive instruments from the main spacecraft. This is an optical bench. And it's the platform on which all of the imaging systems will be placed. So it's a very stable, dimensionally stable system uh, which holds the cameras and the optical assemblies. So this is a laser altimeter. These are navigation cameras. And then this thing slots into the spacecraft. So in this cavity we have a series of electrical and electrically sensitive components. And these cavities are known as vaults because they protect the electronics and other sensitive subsystems from the very strong radiation environment of Jupiter, which I'm gonna say a little bit more about shortly. So each of these boxes contains computers and other electronic systems that feed each of the 10 scientific instruments on board. So 97 square meters of solar arrays need quite a lot of structure to support them. And these are the first parts of the structure. These are external walls which will contain mounting points for those solar arrays. Here are a set of instruments being installed. So there's a harness which connects those instruments to their partner electronics devices inside the vaults. There goes the optical bench. So all of the cameras are now installed. Here's the boom. This is all folded up during launch and it has to deploy once the system is in space. This is the high gain antenna. So it transmits all of the data required by the spacecraft back to Earth and also receives commands from, space, from, from Earth. You can see the shiny stuff which is co- covering the spacecraft. This is multi-layer insulation Oops. and, uh, and, and we're moving on apparently. So um, in three minutes, 20 seconds, that's probably the uh, the best job I can do in in explaining what this spacecraft will look like. Um, How does it get there? Well, um, JUICE is following a path which was established in the early 70s, in fact, the late 60s and early 70s, um, by engineers in the U.S. who worked out the principles of gravitational flyby. So, uh, this is the name of the of one of the, the physicists, the astrodynamicists who during his PhD project worked out some solutions to this problem and uh, my mind has just gone blank and I cannot remember the guy's name. Um, but this is the very compact desktop computer which he used in order to uh, produce solutions that eventually led to the, Um, successful Pioneer and Voyager uh, missions. Um, Nowadays, that kind of computing power is probably in the latest uh, mobile phone, or at least certainly on your desktop computer. Um, So, interaction between the spacecraft and the gravitational field of a planet or a planetary moon can be used to change the the direction of, of flight, to change the trajectory of the spacecraft and also to remove or add energy to the spacecraft at least in the reference frame of the Sun. And this is how JUICE will get to Jupiter and how JUICE will navigate its way around Jupiter once it arrives. So this um, rather messy diagram shows you um, some of the orbits which JUICE conducts during its mission. Each one of these lines represents a gravitational flyby of either Ganymede, Europa, or Callisto. And they are timed to the second with uh, flyby altitudes and locations which are calculated with great precision to produce a game of of cosmic snooker. Each of these maneuvers is designed to change the direction of the spacecraft and set it up for the next interaction. So, the launch date for this spacecraft is currently scheduled for June 2022 with a backup date of August 2023, Uh, and it undertakes a set of flybys of Venus and the Earth on its way out to Jupiter to gain energy to allow it to reach the, uh, the, the, the giant planet. Once it gets there, it... Undertakes a series of flybys of Ganymede and the reason that it does that is to lose energy So when it gets to Jupiter, this thing is moving really fast and the classic way of Putting the brakes on is to burn a propulsion system Is to give it a delta V, a a velocity kick in the direction opposite to the direction of motion To take energy away from the spacecraft and allow it to slow down and enter orbit around the planet That takes fuel, and fuel is mass, and we've already talked about how mass is is a bad thing uh, in terms of of spacecraft mission design. So by exploiting the gravitational interaction of Ganymede, um, the orbit rings down. So each interaction removes a little bit of energy from the orbit, and over the period of about 11 months, with a series of gravity assists from Ganymede, that orbit energy is removed and juice sinks into the um, range of distances in which we find the Galilean moons, which will occupy so much of the mission's uh, uh, objectives. It's not the whole objective. Jupiter itself is a target for, for investigation, and there are a number of reasons why Jupiter is such an interesting planet to study. Um, It's an archetype for the giant planets, and most of the extrasolar planets discovered to date are giant planets, and that's probably a selection effect because of the techniques which are used to detect them, but nevertheless, there are a very large number of these things. And it's really difficult to get to those extrasolar planets, so it's quite convenient that there's a, a, a similar object on the doorstep. This system contains an enormously powerful magnetic field and it's a magnetic field which is generated by the rotation of uh, Jupiter. And that magnetic field traps particles, material, um, along the field lines, just like you saw being trapped in the the sun's magnetic field at the beginning of this talk. There are some quite remarkable processes going on. Um, And this thing then represents a very large particle accelerator. And there are a number of processes that we see in stellar astrophysics, processes uh, uh, relating to the acceleration of plasmas around stars and other objects, for which the Jupiter system becomes a laboratory on the doorstep. One rather interesting interaction is the interaction that takes place with um, the innermost of the Galilean moon's Io. So on this artist's impression, you can see that there's a, what looks like a faint ring of material. That material is actually composed of sulfur ions. And those sulfur ions are left by Io, so it's the wake left behind Io as the moon orbits Jupiter. And the sulfur ions are believed to be sputtered from the surface, so charged particles slam into the surface of, of Io, and release these sulfur ions which trail behind the moon. And because they're ions, they have a charge. And because they have a charge, they get trapped on these magnetic fields. And the effect can be seen in the aurora. By the way, this is happening at a rate of about a ton a second. And it's been going on for hundreds of millions of years. So, if we look at auroral, data for Jupiter. And these are sequences which were captured by the Hubble Space Telescope in a program that was being led by a colleague of mine, John Nichols. You can see Jupiter's aurora. And you've already seen that. You saw it on that static Hubble Space Telescope image that I displayed earlier. But if I rerun this again, take particular note of the region just around the outside of that auroral zone and see if you can spot a little spot. In fact, there it is. It's not so hard. Let's just wait. There it is. And we'll see it again coming down there. That spot is an auroral knot which is created by Io. And what's happening is that the sulfur that's left behind Io it orbits the planet is, is being rapidly trapped by the magnetic field lines and is then moving along the magnetic field lines entering Jupiter's atmosphere near the poles and creating that little auroral giveaway point. And this is why viewing the aurora is a little bit like viewing a TV screen on which processes going on elsewhere in this system are projected. Okay, so that's all very interesting uh, to people who want to study the ionosphere and and the interaction of charged particles with the planet. But it's also a real challenge for anybody who's designing a spacecraft to go to Jupiter. So, this magnetic field is large and very powerful. If we could see it with our eyes, it would be the largest structure in the solar system. And so, it is very effective at trapping the charged particles which are received from the sun. Not only that, because of the rotation of Jupiter, it's very good at accelerating those charged particles. So it's a particle accelerator, and therefore any spacecraft which is flying within the Jupiter system experiences an extremely um, strong radiation field. And that radiation can damage and destroy spacecraft and not just spacecraft but it can destroy instrumentation as well these are some little test pieces these are glass samples which have been irradiated by uh, radiation uh, of energies lower than we expect to see at jupiter and you can see that radiation doesn't do great things for optical systems not only that it creates problems for materials it can change materials properties It can destroy electronic systems, it can cause hang-ups. So if we took a standard piece of electronics, a a laptop or a mobile phone, and you placed it in this kind of radiation environment, it would survive for a a few seconds at most. This thing has to survive for three and a half years. So designing the radiation proofing of the spacecraft is, is important and is quite a challenging job. Uh, And it's done using a combination of testing in in practical facilities and also modeling. So this is a machine which we use at at Leicester um, to model the spacecraft, model the instrument designs and the interactions between the the charged particle radiation and the uh, hardware in order to understand how to design the spacecraft and the electronics to survive that, that environment. But let's come back then to the, the exploration of the, of, the, um, uh, of the moons. And I think I've already um, uh, set out the, the story and the motivation. So, Ganymede is the largest planet in the solar system, uh, largest moon in the solar system. So, we think it has a deep ocean. It's probably the archetype of, of water worlds representative of most of the objects that will exist in that habitable zone. Callisto is a very different object. And one of the, the peculiar characteristics of Callisto is that it's not differentiated. So most of the targets that we, that we know of in the solar system, the moons and planets, have differentiated structures. So stratified layers uh, it, beneath the surface. Callisto, although it appears to have some kind of uh, ocean or, or liquid layer underneath the, the icy surface, it seems to be pretty well mixed up Um, and that may be because of the gravitational interaction of Callisto with Jupiter and the other moons. And then Europa is probably the most uh, famous of the of the ice worlds. Um, It's believed to have a deep ocean when I say believed based on data which has been sent back by Galileo and Voyager and and inferred by other means. Um, So this is an, an example of an environment in which the ocean is probably in contact with the the, the silicate um, floor, very much like the kind of structure that we see on the Earth. And here we are again. So this is the the Europa-like structure where we have an ice layer of thickness which is not well uh, understood. There's a lot of uncertainty about the thickness of that ice layer. Uh, But then observations suggest that that there's a liquid ocean which is in contact with the, the rocky Uh, crustal region here and whether there are processes that exchange heat between the interior of the moon and the ocean just as you saw in those deep ocean vents is not yet known. In the case of water worlds like Ganymede um, that liquid layer is likely to be sandwiched between two icy layers and again whether there are processes that can transfer energy between the interior of the moon and the liquid ocean is unclear and so this is really the heart of what JUICE is designed to do. It's designed to probe these deep, uh, um, cold worlds and establish what is going on on the surface and underneath. So one of the first interesting um, moon flybys is a Europa uh, campaign. So there are two flybys of Europa and those flybys have been designed and timed to fly over particularly interesting areas of the moon. And when I say particularly interesting, what I mean is regions of the moon which Galileo, the spacecraft, not the Italian astronomer, um, has found to show evidence of recent activity. So this is one of the the flybys simulated in some work which we did earlier in uh, in the project. So these are pretty close flybys, but there are only two of them. Um, But Galileo uh, has provided data that suggests that there are some thinned areas of the crust that show evidence of recent activity. And those flybys are designed to pass directly over those zones. So that's the kind of precision with which the gravitational um, uh, flyby maneuvers can be planned. So the the objective of the Europa flybys is to determine whether liquid reservoirs exist if there's an ocean. Is it salty? Is it like our own oceans? How thick is this ice layer? Um, and looking to the far future, is there an obvious location or set of locations which would be promising for future landing missions? The next thing that happens after those two Europa flybys is a series of flybys of Callisto. And that's important First of all, because we want to study Callisto, but we also exploit Callisto's gravitational interaction to crank the orbital inclination up. So without using any fuel, we can go from an equatorial orbit to a high inclination orbit where we get successively better and better views down on the northern and southern poles. So this is a way of exploiting gravitational interactions without burning fuel to explore a much wider range of the the system. And Callisto, as I've already said, is a a, a rather enigmatic world. It's the oldest surface in the solar system. So it contains a record of processes that were going on very, very early on in the formation of the solar system. Um, Its composition is not completely understood. Why it looks the way it does is not completely understood. And the nature of its ocean is not completely understood, despite the fact that space probes have already been through the Jupiter system. These are unknown parameters, and so I'm showing you this plot because it gives you an indication of how these flybys are planned by the the mission planners. So the flybys are planned in terms of the path that the system takes, that the spacecraft takes, but also in terms of the instruments which are switched on at a particular point in time. So the spacecraft has limited power, and therefore it's important to to optimize the observation program so that you get exactly the data you need without burning too much electrical power in order to uh, obtain uh, information from the flyby. So there are a a, a series of experiments including (coughs) imaging, magnetic field sensing, radio science to determine the nature of that crust and the ocean and the processes which have shaped Callisto over the eons. The final target is Ganymede, and again principally using gravitational interactions, um, the spacecraft will end its mission by a series of orbits of Ganymede, starting off with this very elliptical orbit with uh, a maximum altitude of about 10,000 kilometers and a minimum altitude of about 200 kilometers above the surface. so good opportunities to get nice high-resolution images of one side, but then because of the gravitational interaction between the spacecraft and Jupiter and Ganymede, that orbit will evolve. The shape of the orbit changes and it morphs into a circular orbit. And with a little bit more time, the orbit changes again into, once again, an elliptical orbit, but with a slightly different orientation. So, the gravitational interaction of Ganymede and Jupiter allow the spacecraft to explore the system without using fuel. Eventually, there are motor burns which are generated, which are used to place the spacecraft into uh, initially uh, a 500 kilometer altitude orbit and then finally, possibly a 200 kilometer altitude orbit. And This gives us an, an opportunity to really map the surface of Ganymede and to probe that moon with levels of precision to levels of detail that haven't been possible previously, and really to lift um, the veil, to lift that ice crust away, and by remote sensing techniques to work out what exactly is underneath that icy surface. Um, So characterizing the shell, working out how thick that shell is using... Remote sensing, using ground penetrating radar, using magnetometry and imaging is one of the key goals of that that phase. Understanding how these surface features are formed, because knowing how the surface features formed tells us something about the evolutionary history of of the Jovian system. And characterizing the local environment and its interaction with Jupiter. And the the reason that that's interesting will become clear uh, very shortly. This slide is just here to give you an idea of how it's possible to say anything about the ocean when you can't actually see the ocean. So using models of the interaction of magnetic fields with water, with water at various temperatures and salinity, um, we can use magnetometry to measure how Jupiter's magnetic field is modified as it passes through Ganymede. And depending on the thickness of the ocean, the depth of the ocean, the salinity of the ocean, we expect different magnetic signatures to come from uh, from that interaction. We can also exploit the fact that Ganymede's orbit around Jupiter is slightly elliptical. And so it experiences tidal forces which will cause the crust to rise and fall. And how thick the crust is has a direct relationship to how... Uh, how high or what the amplitude of that crustal deformation is. So by carrying a laser altimeter, we can work out how how thick the crust is by looking for those variations. By carrying a magnetometer, we can work out how thick the ocean is and perhaps place limits on the salinity and other properties of the ocean. Of course, getting close means that we can take images with... Levels of detail that just haven't been possible before so this rather pretty map here shows the coverage of Ganymede surface that was achieved by Galileo and uh, The yellow regions are the highest resolution so they provide a resolution of about 2 to 10 kilometers per pixel most of this is at 50 to 100 kilometers per pixel or uh, even more and of course much of the surface hasn't been mapped at all by by Galileo This is what it looks like with juice. So most of this surface is mapped at two to 10 kilometers. The polar regions are 10 to 20 kilometers, Um, but for some areas we get better than 10 meters per pixel. And if we want to understand the surface, if we want to look for areas where that liquid ocean may be seeping through or where we might have thin areas that we can use to access that liquid ocean, it's this really high resolution imaging which is required and which JUICE is designed to, to provide. So coming to the end now but just to give you an idea of what this looks like globally. So this is Galileo's spatial resolution versus the percentage of the, of the moon surface that it covers and with juice and orbit around Ganymede, we get of the order of a factor of 50 improvement in that, um, in that resolution. And, and finally, coming back to the Aurora, Ganymede is unique in another way because Ganymede is the only planetary satellite to have its own magnetic field. And when um, Feldman et al pointed the Hubble Space Telescope towards Ganymede, they saw these emissions. And this is the emission of aurora above the surface of Ganymede. To have aurora, you need charged particles which are in abundance at Jupiter, but you also need an atmosphere to excite. Where does that atmosphere come from on Ganymede? Some of it may come from exogenic sources, in other words, sources beyond Ganymede itself but there is good reason to think that a lot of this material is actually coming from the surface and perhaps the subsurface. So, vapor seeping through that icy surface generating a localized atmosphere in which these auroral emissions that are visible from Earth with extraordinary optics um, are produced. So, by looking at Ganymede, we're looking at an object that has a magnetic field that's sitting inside another magnetic system. And so in this respect, the Ganymede Jupiter system is very much like a miniature version of the Earth-Sun system. And so by looking at uh, Jupiter and the interaction between its magnetic fields and its moons, we're effectively getting a bird's eye view of processes that also underpin the Earth-Sun and other Planetary solar system interactions. So the end of the mission is uh, a, a, a death plunge. So after that final low altitude circular orbit phase, the spacecraft is deliberately deorbited and uh, crashes into the surface of Ganymede and juices no more. Beyond juice, Well, not necessarily beyond, but in parallel, um, there's Europa Clipper, which is a mission being developed by the US, and it's also due for launch around 2022, and its objective is to conduct a number of flybys of Europa to map out the surface of Europa in great detail, perhaps prepare for a future landing, perhaps carry a surface lander on it. That's still under debate. Of course, in the long term, The objective is actually to land on Europa. Those of you who've seen 2010 with the attempt no landing there, TV message might be building an image here, but there are serious plans uh, and a lot of people thinking about how subsurface exploration of Europa could take place using heated drilling systems to get to melt down through the ice crust, whose thickness of course we don't know yet. Uh, to access that liquid water underneath and to perform scientific measurements has to be the dream of, of, of any Exobiologist and a, I think if we're honest um, a large fraction of the astronomy community as well uh, But this is a long way off in the future So um, I am now at one hour two minutes and 17 seconds So I think it's time for me to wrap up, but there, there's I want to leave you with a message and that is that um, these are really long timescale endeavors. All major space missions are. And JUICE really puts it in perspective. So it was, it was proposed in 2008 where we're building it now. It will be launched in 2022 or thereabouts. It gets to Jupiter in 2030. It finishes its mission in 2033. So if you think about this, most of the PhD students who are going to work on data from this are at primary school right now. Which is why, when we take this talk to primary schools, people seem to be quite interested. Their supervisors are already in secondary school. Um, They have time to go to university, realize they chose the wrong degree, uh, and to go back and do engineering, or maths, or physics, instead. Um, Some of their heads of department could be undergraduates in Bath. So, it's a long-term venture, um, and the people who are building it are very much building this for the next generation of engineers and scientists to work on. And it's always been that way. When XMM-Newton was launched, there are people who were in the room watching that launch who'd spent most of their careers planning and designing and building it. And they were handing that over to the next generation of X-ray astronomers and astrophysicists. And there's very much a sense of, su- of succession in the JUICE project. People are well aware of the fact that that they're designing systems, which for many of us uh, will be operating around the time that we're gonna retire. So this is very much a mission of the future. And with that, um, thank you very much for, for your attention. I'm happy to take any questions afterwards.